conductive way And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me everyone welcome to geekdom is back as is katie schaefer today we're talking all about scary stories to tell in the dark we are mostly focusing on the movie today but we are going to briefly touch on the book because it is the source material so katie i know you just recently saw this and it's been a while since you've read the book but as you were watching it did those stories sort of come back to you oh yes Oh, yes. There were scenes in it where I knew which story was coming, and it horrified me. It was like, especially the spider one. And I have these very vivid memories, because my sister read them to me when I was probably five. Okay. And then I think I read them later when I was eight, nine at the most, maybe younger. So childhood nightmares about them really imprinted the stories on me. See, I was the opposite. I had never read the stories I had heard about them, and obviously I had plenty of friends talking about them once the movie came out, and I was like, you know, I don't think I ever had that book, and given that I'm someone who has a lot of books, I was like, well, that kind of bums me out a little. Yeah, and I think there was a period where they changed the pictures, and the original pictures as are what I think really makes those stories so upsetting, Okay, because the newer ones were much more... Much less horrifying, we shall say, because that's what I remember the most is the is the images. And my son actually read these uh, without telling me he was reading them because they have them in their school library. And he was like, oh, yeah, I read those. They're kind of freaky. <laughs> and I was just like, child, you didn't read them young enough if they were just kind of freaky. Yeah. And obviously, I went and read the first book after the movie and it didn't have that kind of impact for me because, you know, Having read so many Stephen King books and other horror <laughs> books, you're like, oh, okay, I see how this could be terrifying to children. But for me, it's just like this fun little thing to read and get that perspective on how they went about the movie. And I do want to dive into how they adapted it, because obviously you can't adapt these just on their own. They had to make it so that they were using multiple stories and that they were all able to weave together, which I didn't get that vibe with the book. It's like each story was kind of a standalone thing. Yeah, it's an anthology of stories, I think. And I think that that works really well in the book because it's like, you know, book of fairy tales or something, except they're horror tales. And I was wondering that same thing going in, like, okay, are we going to get like an anthology of little shorts? And I kind of suspected that was not what was coming because I don't think that would be as impactful as how they did it here in the movie. Right. And I was really happy with how they did it. I thought they managed to tell one overarching story and fit these creepy little things in it and have it all feel of a piece. Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with how they casted the movie as well and the characters that they put in, because a lot of these stories focus more on the monsters than actual characters. So obviously the monsters were what people were going to be looking a little harder at. You know, you have the toe monster, you have Jangly Man, you have the pale lady, you know, the scarecrow, and all of those I thought looked really good given that this was sort of that mid-level budget movie 
Yes, I agree. And I think I wouldn't be surprised if the fact that Del Toro produced this had something to do with it. Yes. <laughs> I would guess he probably assisted a little bit. But the guy who directed this is, um, oh God, his last name. His last name is, he. I believe he's Swedish. And I'm not too familiar with names in that language. But it's Andre Overdahl, we're going to go say. That's and, my guess too. <laughs> <laughs> and he did Troll Hunters, the Swedish version, and the Autopsy of Jane Doe, which I love. And that movie has the same really excellent creature effects. He is Norwegian, by the way, just a heads up. Norwegian. Scandinavian, okay. nonetheless. <laughs> yes. So I think he was a great choice to direct this because they don't, the creatures don't look like Del Toro's work. They are very much their own and they are very much back to those original illustrations. Right. So I think that really played into it feeling like the scary stories without having the stories be exact what they are in the book. And fun little tidbit, the director is going to be also directing The Long Walk, which is a Stephen King adaptation. So just a little tie into Chat Cemetery there, my other podcast. Yes, that sounds fun. He'll do a great job. Yeah, I hope so, because that's one of those stories I feel like is going to be tough to adapt. But you could say the same for these stories because they don't connect, but they found a way with the Bellows family. And then you have Stella, Ramon, Augie, Chuck, Ruthie, these characters who all know each other and all have these different connections just in life in general. And you can tell they're kind of the outsiders. And I think that's what makes this work. Ruthie a little less so because, you know, she's the older sister and has her own thing going on. But you kind of have some almost Stephen King-like vibes in this as far as, you know, maybe in relation to a movie like It goes, because you have this group of outcast kids. They're being bullied by the popular kid who is, I think, you know, someone's son, and he kind of just gets away with everything. Obviously, he's someone's son, but like someone with <laughs> status in the community, <laughs> right, right. That's the impression I got too, was that he had a reason. There was a reason why he could get away with the pretty insane violence that he does. This was also, it's also set in the 70s, 60s, I think. Something like that. Based on the cars I saw, it was probably 60s or 70s. Right. And it's during the Nixon election. There we go. Yep. <laughs> yep. Because it's during the Nixon election. A very sad time for the country. Um, but I agree. I think it it really captures this sense of that dangerous years of childhood during the transition from being a kid. Now you're in the teenager and now you're learning how to be an adult. And it, Stephen King is excellent at that. And I think they tap into that same place that King usually does with these characters. But they feel they still feel very much like their own characters, in particular, uh, Stella. I think for me, she was the most interesting person to watch on screen. Yeah. And now that I think about it, the bully actually just kind of lived on a farm because he was the one who lived like where that scarecrow was. So his family, right. I guess I wouldn't call it a position of status or anything for them, but they're kind of like the local farmers and, you know, they were yelling at him to go deliver eggs. So there is some importance <laughs> to his parents if they're providing the town with eggs and things like that. But at the same time, right. he kind of had that vibe about him to where he could just kind of get away with 
anything because people were like, oh, you know, that's so-and-so's kid. And, you know, we kind of all knew he was going to end up like this. Right. And he and that kid, um, Austin Abrams, does a great job at being that bully. Although I will say that during uh, the big scene where where he is attacking them at the drive-in and stuff, I didn't get that he was supposed to be drunk until he goes home, but he was acting drunk. Mm-hmm. And so it was very confusing. I was like, is this, what is going on with this kid? Is he like, is he supposed to be portrayed as, you know, disabled or something going on here? And then, are you drunk? Just like, well, you should have told us that before. We should have gotten a little bit of that before because I think it would have added to his character. And all you would have needed to show is him like swigging back a bottle and that right. would have been sufficient to send that message. And who knows what could have ended up as deleted scenes. You know, sometimes they take out just little scenes like that because in the bigger picture, they're not super important. They would have been nice. But if you're trying to stick to a budget and runtime and that sort of thing, unfortunately, sometimes things like that get glossed over a little. But overall, I thought they did a nice job with just letting us know what kind of families these kids come from. Yes, I agree. I think the only one who we maybe could have gotten more from, but I believe was probably, if it was, it was cut for the same reasons, was Augie's. Mm -hmm. But we still get some of it. We still get that little phone conversation he has with his mom really sets up everything you need to know about his character and what his life is like. And I thought that was so well done. When they do give you details about these characters, they are perfectly set into the film so that it isn't disruptive and it doesn't feel like they're telling instead of showing. Right. And you can kind of extrapolate from those small moments. And I think they're still obvious enough that, you know, this movie is obviously meant for the tweens and up. Mm -hmm. So I think even kids like my son's age, who's 11, I think he still got that. It wasn't so buried that you have to be watching with an eagle eye to really get it, you know? I'll be honest, too. I only really recognized three of the actors in this, and it was Dean Norris, Gil Bellows, and Lorraine Toussaint. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but, you know, I had seen Dean Norris in Breaking Bad. Gil Bellows happened to have been in a couple other things that I have seen. He was in this show called Eyewitness, which was a U.S. version of a European show. And then Lorraine Toussaint was in Orange is the New Black. So I was like, okay, these three look familiar to me. Nobody else does. And I think when you get kids of this age in these movies, it's kind of a test of what they're going to be capable of. I agree, especially in something so intense. Because there's several really intense scenes in this movie, even outside of, you know, the death scenes. You know, that the one where they are down in Cerebello's room, that whole interaction is just fraught with tension that climbs very steadily. Yeah. And all of them do such a great job. Like, in particular, like I said, Stella. But I think uh, Chuck Steinberg is the character, but Austin... Zajur is the actor, and I think even he does something really good. And he's playing kind of the class clown type guy, which can be hard to do in this kind of film because if you do it too much, it's overacting and it kind of breaks that tension. But if you're not doing it enough, then the character just kind of seems dumb. So I think he really hits that sweet spot of contributing what he's supposed to without going too far. 
Yeah, there's definitely a different kind of balance you have to hit, especially in horror movies, because we've seen a lot of people get their start in horror movies. And you could argue that this as sort of a starter horror movie is a lot better produced than some of the things that you and I have particularly discussed on Chat Cemetery. And even on this, you know, obviously Halloween is an exception. That's a really well-made movie for the time. And it got Jamie Lee Curtis her start, really. It wasn't, you know, the only thing she had been in, if I'm not mistaken, but it kind of took her to this next level. And she eventually moved out of horror movies and things like that. And I think that's something that we could see these kids easily doing. And obviously, Austin Abrams has been in other stuff. I think he was probably of the teens in this the most, I guess, experienced. Yeah, I think so, too. He's got, oh, yeah, he's been in a lot of stuff. Yeah, like. I think he did the Fault TV in Our Stars and, and yep. some, some He was HBO on The Walking stuff. Dead. Paper Towns, yeah, tons of different teen stuff. Oh, Paper Towns. Wrong John Green book, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> they kind of run together. I know, they do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and it looks like he, he's got three movies in post-production right now. So it seems okay. like his, his star is ascending, as they say. But yeah, I think if you're going to have something on your resume, essentially, in your reel... I think this is a really, really great start. You know, this is a strong thing to put out there that will get casting uh, people into these actors and actresses because they all do such a great job with something that could easily veer into camp or just plain bad horror because the different the line between good horror and bad horror is a thin one. And this one, especially with the age group that they were going at, was a really hard target to hit, I think, having seen a lot of uh, kids' horror movies. Yeah. What did you think of how they weave the story around these standalone stories? I think they do a great job. I really liked it. I mean, because I think even if you hadn't read the books, you could go into this and you would still really like it. Um, I think in particular, the three main ones that they do... Or is it four? The Pale Lady, the Toe. Oh, I think there's more than that. But the... Jangly see, Man. Yes. And um, the Spiders. And each one of them, if you have read the books, you see them coming and it's just chills up your, up your spine as you know how it's all going to unfold. But if you haven't seen them, then they still do the same thing. And that's really challenging to do. And I liked the overarching story that they had, and I thought they slotted these in very, very well. And it feels, each one feels satisfying on its own while also adding to the bigger story, which I... I can't imagine how hard it was to adapt this into a into, from a book into a film. I think having Sarah Bellows have this book that writes the stories was kind of a clever way to introduce each of these stories because they only really affect one person at a time. You know, you have Harold the Scarecrow with Tommy. You have the spiders with Ruthie. You have the toe soup stuff going on oh. and these things 
target one person at a time. And I think that was the best way to have these standalone stories work a little better together in the bigger picture of things, because it's not like all of these stories were trying to happen to everyone. It was just going one at a time. So it, in a way, it almost felt like an anthology movie, but they had this sort of wraparound that was a little more inclusive than something like the wraparounds we would see in the Creepshow movies. Yes, I definitely agree. No, with having it happen to each character when they are alone makes it even more terrifying, especially because they set it so that, you know, when the toe thing is happening to Augie, Ramon and Stella know what's going on and they are racing to try to help their friend. And each time that happens, it's just over before they can get there. And that makes it feel even more all a part of a whole because it makes you fear being alone. And like when Chuck gets separated, it's like, no, dude, you don't, don't leave the group. Okay. We should all know by now (laughs) you don't leave the group. And that's a very much a horror trope. And so they play into that so well in order to give us that anthology of stories without it feeling like, okay, now one person is going to sit down and tell us a story with the flashlight under their chin. (laughs) But they still have that aspect because Sarah Bellows is still writing the story. So it's, it's very masterfully done. And the fact that this screenplay has no fewer than five writing credits is even more impressive because usually the more writers you get, the worse it comes out. Yeah, it is one of those things where you're kind of like, okay, it's like an anthology, but not really an anthology. And you can almost see how they would even continue on because even though these bad things happen, they're still able to find a way to get it to stop. And I don't think you necessarily, you know, if they were to do another movie, bring Sarah Bellows back, just because that chapter feels like they closed it pretty well. But you can still have, you know, maybe a couple of the characters come back that we see at the end because we don't lose all of them, which I think is nice. Usually at the end of a horror movie, especially slasher films, you feel like there's one person standing (laughs) at the end. And in this, you at least get a few of them. Right. One of whom, one of them has gone through one of the awful, horrible, uh, you know, events. You know, Ruthie is alive. And that feels more powerful. And I liked very much how they wrapped all of this up at the end with Sarah Bellows and having it recognized that she's the victim and that uh, Stella finds that the way to make it all stop is to tell Sarah's story and get it out there and to help Sarah let go of the pain that she's felt because of how she was treated. Like that conclusion to the story makes it so much stronger than Sarah just being a creepy evil witch. So it's, they wrapped all of this up very nicely, but I agree that there's totally room for them to tell more of these stories with these characters in it. Because really, you just have Stella and Ruthie, because Ramon has you know left the scene for story reasons, and it made me wonder. I was like, well, I'd be okay if we don't get another movie, but if we do, I have confidence that it will be good because they've managed to do such a great job with this movie. I'm glad that you mentioned the ending with Ramon because it was one of those things where 
they didn't just spring that on you. They did make mention of him sort of trying to dodge the draft early on. So it kind of came full circle and he was like, okay, you know, I have to go do this thing. Can't just keep running around. And I think he went to go do it because he wanted to have a place to come back to. And I think he knew he had that with Stella and her family, even though it's, you know, just her and her dad. And clearly they took Ruthie. I don't know what happened to Ruthie's parents. I was a little confused by that at the end. I was like, do they not want her back? Like, did they just, are they kidnapping her? Yeah. Yes, exactly. (laughs) That's the only thing that I was like, that kind of doesn't make sense, but we're going to run with it because that's kind of a nicer ending. Right. And who knows? Who knows? Because it felt I had the same question. And then when we got out of the movie, that was what my partner said immediately. Like, Ruthie's parents dead or something? What's happening here? So I agree. But I was happy to be like, who knows? She just ran away. It's fine. Yeah. I just want to make note that it was also nice that they kept Lulu around to sort of tie the present day together with the past because she was the only one who had this connection to the Bellows family, really, still. Yeah, and I was wondering when they bring her in the first time, I was like, what's going on with that? But then, I agree, they do, she serves as such a great character to tie everything as a through line, and it makes it feel more complete. But I did wonder why they have the Vietnam War in this, And I am so excited to go back and watch this again to see if I can see more ties of it. Because Del Toro was one of the screenplay writers. And he does a lot of tying in wars into his stories to make a commentary on them. Like, especially in Pan's Labyrinth, of course. But there's got to be something. He wouldn't have just chosen that at random because it fits. So I'm very interested to see what that is, because I assume that there's a purpose other than, well, we'll just have Ramon be a draft dodger. That works because that's expensive. That takes a lot of your budget to, you know, do a period piece, especially those cars. Oh, absolutely. And this is something they could have easily updated. You know, they didn't have to make this set in 1968. So that's definitely interesting that you brought that up because I didn't even think about that because I hadn't read the book before. I was like, oh, maybe these stories just take place or that's when the book was written. But the book came out in 81, if I'm not mistaken. So I was like, well, now that doesn't make sense either. (laughs) Right. And a lot of the stories are set in some time. You know, they don't have a place because they're very short. So that kind of information is totally extraneous to what's going on. So it's, yeah, I was wondering about the reasoning for that. So I, like I said, I'm very excited to watch this again when it comes out on Blu-ray to see, okay, what's happening here? Why is this part of it too? Oh, totally. I'm glad you brought up the fact that it's kind of this period piece too, because a lot of the visuals, I think, lend themselves to that. You kind of get this color palette that just kind of fits with what we've seen from pictures of the 60s and everything like that. The cars, they definitely nailed those. But then you also have the visuals of the monsters. And it's just like they pulled from the images, the illustrations in the book so well. And you're just like, I'm so glad they kind of brought these to life in this way because they look absolutely creepy. Oh, yes. They are just as terrible in the film as they are on the page with Albert Schwartz's original uh, illustrations, Alvin Schwartz, excuse me. And he 
did such a great job illustrating them. And I was kind of wondering going into this, like, I don't know how they're going to top those images from the books. It's, and they don't top them, but they come right up to them. They are just as freaky and upsetting to look at and feel very inspired by the original illustrations. And I very much appreciated that. That I think more than anything was such a strong tie back and made this story feel like an adaptation of those books. The visuals were definitely a strong point for me when I was watching this. I was like, okay, yes, they kind of nailed these visuals as best as they could. Again, given the budget, the budget on this was $25 million, which I know sounds like a lot to us everyday people. But movie-wise, when you look at that in comparison to like the budgets that Disney movies have, that's next to nothing. Yeah, in, in comparison to the budget of like an average drama picture, that's nothing. You know, most of those have 50 plus, 50, 60 plus, or like right. a, a comedy $25 million is a very, very small budget for this kind of creature feature. But I think a lot of the, I think a lot of how they worked around their budget is that there is not a lot of CGI in this movie, which is the most expensive part of making one of those big movies is right. the CGI, the, the work involved in it. I think instead they opted to go with a lot of practical effects and that works very well in the movie's favor. Like the pale lady is a practical suit and that's very reusable. So I think they did a great job deciding to go with practical effects and it saved the money, obviously. Yeah, because even in comparison to something like It and It Chapter 2, this has a pretty modest budget because, again, with It and It Chapter 2, they've definitely used CGI in those just because of the way Pennywise moves and things like that. It's just like, okay, that would be very hard to do practically <laughs> at times. So you do right. have more CGI in you know, that set of movies, but at the same time, you can sort of still instill this kind of fear with something like scary stories to tell in the dark. Definitely. And it makes it feel all the more real with the practical effects, I think. And these aren't, I mean, these stories are creepy and upsetting, but they're not incredibly dramatic set pieces. These are very real, basic things to fear, like the spiders coming out of her face. That type of thing is such a creepily realistic because it almost feels like it could happen. It can't, but it almost feels that way. And that is where the terror in the books lies, I think. Right. Plus, it was nice that they didn't spend too much time on any one story. It was pretty well paced. And obviously, the overarching story with the Bellows family is sort of the driving force for all of the kind of sub stories with all of these monsters. And to have that be as well paced as it was, you know, I didn't feel like I was sitting in the movie for hours upon hours being like, okay, where is this going? Yeah, I agree. I think it takes a little bit to get going in the beginning. It lays out a lot of stuff for you so that the when the scary part hits, they don't have to stop the tension and explain to you this is what's going on. So I felt that like right up until the scenes with Tommy, I was like, okay, are we, where are the scary stories part of this? But then it hits at such a great point and then just takes off. It does yeah. not slow down from that point on. And 
I think they did it just right with the pacing. They built up all of the characters so that you would have a reason to care about them. Because if they just started this movie and jumped right into, you know, the first creature or monster, you'd be like, okay, so what? <laughs> right, exactly. And since they were doing this very difficult adaptation, I think that was the way to go. And it feels good. You know, it like might be a little dissatisfying when you're watching it, if you haven't seen it before. But then once things get going, it's like, oh, good. I'm glad we got all that out of the way on the front end. And now we can just kick it into high gear. Yeah. One thing I do want to discuss before we start wrapping things up is the fact that rich people are so weird. Because watching this <laughs> and, you know, just learning about the Bellows family throughout, you're like, okay, this is weird because clearly they were like the richest family in town. And then I've recently went to watch Ready or Not. <laughs> and, you know, that's an entire story about rich people having traditions. And I was just like, okay, obviously rich people being super weird works really well for horror movies. <laughs> and it, it just does. got me thinking recently. I was like, wow, rich people are really weird. And obviously there are plenty of fantastic rich people out in the world. But, you know, with things like the college admission scandal that's going on with a bunch of rich people right now, you're just like, you know, you would think people with this much money would be a little smarter <laughs> about right, how they, they do things. And then it is a totally different world. I agree. <laughs> yeah. But because they have so much money, they're just like, I can get away with this. It's fine. So to see how that formed in the Bellows family in this, you know, they kept Sarah locked up like a, an animal, even worse than an animal. Like, I don't think anyone I know would do that to an animal. I would hope not anyway. No. And it's just like, what were they thinking? And because of the time period that the Bellows family comes from, it's like people really did not push back against rich people at all. It's like they ran the world. I mean, they still do today, but there's a little more pushback, I would say. And you just get this feeling that they could get away with anything if they could do that to their own family member and keep it quiet for so long. Right. And they do. They, you know, especially because she knows they're poisoning the well. They're poisoning it with the mercury. And that's... I totally agree. And I found it. I just actually watched uh, The Goldfinch last week talking about wealthy people. Okay. And it's the same in that. And that is not a horror movie, but those wealthy people, they are weird. Very, <laughs> very weird in the movie. It's fascinating that that's the other route they opted to go was to have this conclusion to the story when you find out that Sarah isn't the bad person in this and that it's horrific fact of her family keeping her in a cage and it's even more powerful when that's the result and that's the whole cause of all of these people's deaths is these wealthy people you know abusing someone utterly abusing someone for their own gain and because she's an albino and because she is i think it's kind of implied that she is somewhat mentally ill and at the time, at that time, it would not have been considered that weird to suppress and hide a family member for those reasons, because they're different. And that makes your family look bad somehow. I don't know how, but it does. So I think that was a really interesting thing to include in this story. Like there's so much going on in the backstory of this film and it never 
gets out of control. Like they manage to keep everything in line with the plot and not have it feel like there's extraneous information given or something comes out of the blue. Like it all feels uh, earned when it comes to the end. Plus, given how big that house was, the fact that they put her in like this dungeon was even worse. It's like you couldn't just lock her in one of the normal bedrooms. You had to put her down in this place where she can't even, you know, get any sunlight or anything really. And right, the fact that it was a secret passageway, too, I was just like, man, rich people are crazy. Right. And a really poorly hidden one, like really poorly hidden if these kids can find it in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> just, I looked at it and I was like, well, of course, anyone's going to wonder, why do you have two like cutouts in the wood here? What's that all about? <laughs> you know, it was it was I agree. It was very like. It was very puzzling at certain points of how these very, very rich people managed to get away with this and feel totally fine about it. Yeah. And it's like the secret passageway was in like, I don't know if it was like the servant's kitchen or something or the main kitchen, but it was just like, really, people aren't going to notice that you slide this thing over to open it. (laughs) Right. Exactly. It was just puzzling and intense. Yeah. At least in ready or not, their secret passageways were a little more believable. (laughs) So it's just one of those things where you're like, okay, this movie was a fun time, but there were aspects of it where you were just kind of like, well, that was a creative choice. That was kind of weird. Like the passageway, like Ruthie just going off with Stella and her dad afterwards. And you're like, um, okay, I guess we'll just run with it because, you know, having a good time here and we can analyze it later as we are doing right now yep exactly just kind of go through it and in the moment you go just let that go we're just gonna just accept it and try to stuff it under you know uh suspended disbelief you know just gotta keep going because otherwise it's a it's a hitch in the film that kind of pulls you out a little bit and honestly you know horror movies don't always have to be super believable because there is not a whole lot about most Stephen King stories that is realistic and something right. that would actually happen in real life. So I think horror is one of those genres, kind of like fantasy or sci-fi, where you let things slide a little more just because you know that these aren't things that are really happening in everyday life exactly and that's fine and to be expected you know if you're if you're willing to believe that a scarecrow comes to life and turns tommy into another scarecrow it's should not be that hard to jump to the idea that ruthie just leaves her family to go with stella and her dad you know but somehow it is somehow it is more difficult to kind of just accept that than accepting the idea that Tommy gets turned into a scarecrow. Yeah, I have some quick final thoughts on the whole Ruthie thing. I'm wondering if because she ended up like in a mental hospital, similar to the way that Sarah Bellows did at times, maybe her family kind of just disowned her because, again, late 60s, mental health is not something that people were still really willing to openly talk about back then. Yes, exactly. Freud was maybe 30, 40 years previous to that. Yeah. that And that was really the first big exploration in psychiatry was Sigmund Freud. 
Yeah. And, you know, we're just now seeing it become this thing that's talked about more and more today. So realistically, what, 50 years ago when this movie takes place, I think that was something that they did well. They were like, okay, you know, back in Sarah Bellow's time, they really, really did not talk about this. They did not handle any of it the right way, you know, because they didn't know. Yeah. Yeah, and it was a, it was not a good time. Asylums no. <laughs> were not good places, and yes, it feels very, that part does feel very believable. And I, I would agree that maybe Ruthie's parents were just like, yeah, you just go away, because the whole town knows about her freakout. This was not something that happened in her bedroom at night. You know, it happens at the school during the school play. Right. Like it's it's a pretty dramatic scene. So it's that is something I could kind of just go okay. Sure. She just leaves home. And it wasn't unusual in the 60s for girls of that age to leave home. You know, hitchhiking was a big thing then. And it usually when teenagers disappeared, that was their general assumption was that they just run off. Yeah, because you're also getting into like the midst of the hippie era and everything right around then, too. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, do you have any other final thoughts on this? I ended up giving this a three and a half out of five. Like I said, there were some things where you're like, eh, okay, we'll let that slide. But overall, I did enjoy going out and watching this. I think that in general, I think these kinds of movies are so important for kids between the ages of like nine and 15, 14, because I think this is during that age learning to be able to watch and be and be scared and not be so affected by it is a very important life skill and i think they do such a great job making this a movie that does not talk down to kids of that age right. and makes it really genuinely scary and doesn't rely a whole lot on jump scares to do that for the most part there's some in there of course but not a whole lot. Instead, this film relies on the knowing horror, like in the scenes with the pale lady where she is just straight coming for Chuck and he can see her and can't escape. You know, I think it gives kids a ability to cope with the difficulties of life. And I was so pleased to see that they didn't pull back in this film. They went fully for the fear and terror that these original stories uh, impart and I was really pleased with it. And I ended up giving this a four out of five okay. because I I really enjoyed it and I thought it was very well done. Uh, there were some things that didn't quite work, but that's OK. Not every movie needs to be perfect. Yeah. Would you say this is like a great gateway horror movie for the younger generation? Yes. I mean, for kids who aren't exposed to horror growing up. Mm -hmm. Yes. Definitely. I mean, my kid's already seen Halloween, so yeah. <laughs> he's he's already dipped his toes into the water and is out swimming. But he really liked it, too. And he thought it was fun and a little freaky. So I think it would be a great starter for someone who doesn't have a whole lot of experience with the genre. And that's really what the book felt like, too, when I was reading through it, even though I didn't read it at, you know, the proper age, kind of. Right. It was one of those things where I could see how this would sort of introduce people to other horror writers whether or not you know kids need to be reading Stephen King that's a different thing but <laughs> right. it's something where you can tell that it's like okay this is our version of a kid's horror story and 
you don't get too many of those. Obviously, you kind of have, you know, the Grimm's fairy tales and you do get these things that are a little darker than you would expect for kids stories. And even going back to some things now, you're like, oh, this has a whole new meaning now that I'm an adult. Right. Like The Secret of Nim. That for me was an introduction into uh, scary stories because that movie is really upsetting. (laughs) Yeah. But I loved watching it. And I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't sleep in the same room as this book when I was small because it freaked me out. Um, I would hide it in the house because I was like, no, I don't want these things to come out in the night and find me. But I couldn't resist reading it. It felt I liked that feeling of being scared. And that kind of gave me a taste for that sensation that then I read Stephen King novels and watch horror movies and all that kind of thing. And it gives you a new appreciation for the genre and this movie and the original book are a great stepping stone. And you can, if you read those and watch the movie and you find you don't like it, then you know horror is probably not for you. Yeah, totally. Well, before we wrap this up, I just quickly want to let everyone know about our Patreon. You can support the podcast in general for a dollar a month. If you want to pick a topic for the podcast, a book, TV show, movie, something we haven't already covered, you can do that with the $5 a month tier. And then I will go through it, find someone who also wants to talk about it and get that episode posted. You can also follow us at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram, at Geekdom Pod on Twitter, and we're also at Welcome to Geekdom on Facebook. I don't use that as much, though. But anyway, Katie, thank you for joining me to discuss this. It was definitely fun to kind of just run through it and also to eventually read the book because it was one of those things I was like, I've heard of this, but never dived into it. Definitely. It was fun. I hadn't thought about this in a lo- these books in a long time, and then the movie came out. I just did not have time to see it, so I'm so glad I got the opportunity to go see it and then immediately discuss it with you the day after. <laughs> of course, and you know, you'll be back on for plenty of other things. If anyone wants to get more of a horror fix, I also have another podcast, Chat Cemetery, that dives into all Stephen King things. I know I brought it up a little earlier in the podcast, but if you want to check that out too, pick out what things you have seen or read and listen to those episodes. I'm not opposed to people just picking and choosing. So that wraps up today's discussion. As always, thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.